You're listening to the Talking Rheumatology Cases podcast, brought to you by the British Society for Rheumatology. Hello there, my name is Ashley Oyed and I'm a rheumatology registrar based in Belfast. Today, uh, we've been kindly joined by Dr. Kasim Javed. He is an academic rheumatologist and honorary consultant, a rheumatologist based in Oxford. Mm -hmm. Today, we are going to uh, talk through a case on metabolic bone disease. Many thanks uh, for joining us, Dr. Javed. Not at all, Ash. So we have a case that was previously presented at BSR, and I'm just going to talk through the background to that, and then we can talk about some of the questions that arise in the case. So we have a 32-year-old male back in 2017, had suffered quite severe Crohn's disease, had underwent a jejunal resection, along with treatment including azathioprine and TNF inhibition. In 2015, he underwent a stem cell autograft. In 2016, he suffered from issues around iron deficiency anemia, lower GI bleeding, a mesenteric vein thrombosis, portal hypertension, viruses, and at that point, TIPS was not feasible. So the patient was commenced on long-term IV iron replacement, in the form of Ferinject, 250 milligrams every two weeks with top-up transfusions. So the gentleman then presented to the metabolic bone clinic as a result of having severe uh, foot and leg pain and being diagnosed with insufficiency metatarsal and tarsal fractures in March 2017. So my first question really is, if this patient came to your metabolic bone clinic, how would you assess this gentleman from the history and examination? And what um, investigations would be your sort of baseline screening tests? Yeah, thanks, Ash. So, the, I mean, it's well known that individuals with Crohn's disease have a higher risk of fracture. And this, your first thought would be lots of steroid use. Does he have osteoporosis? So you take a history, you assess for other fracture history, which he hadn't, family history of fracture and osteoporosis, especially hip fracture. You'd look for other secondary causes. You'd assess uh, steroid exposure uh, in terms of duration, recency, and maximum dose. And then uh, you'd want to look at lifestyle factors, smoking, alcohol, uh, calcium intake. And then do a, a pretty standard examination. Uh, obviously, he came in with focal fractures in the feet. Um, you want to examine the feet, see if there's any signs of bony tenderness, which may indicate active fractures rather than healing fractures. Uh, and then do a standard panel of bone profile, uh, vitamin D, PTH, uh, and maybe also consider a bone density scan. That's lovely. And so... We got a couple of results back on this gentleman um, in March 2017. Uh, the initial panel of bloods firstly showed that his phosphate level was low at 0.2 millimoles per litre, normal values being between 0.7 and 1.45. He also had an elevated ALP at 193 IU per litre. He had a PTH, which was the upper limit of normal at 8.8. And he had a vitamin D level that was uh, insufficient at 13.4 nanomoles per litre. He was treated with a combination of alkal uh, BD, vitamin D, 50,000 units weekly times six, and then 30, uh, 3,200 IU per day, and then uh, with magnesium infusions as well. So with these um, blood test results, what would be your first thoughts and next steps for the most common causes and also those things that we need to rule out? 
Yeah, so, I mean, the common thing is the low vitamin D, uh, and maybe you think that's causing the problem. Normally, vitamin D is causing a problem. You get a raised outfoss, which he has, but the PTH should also be high. So it's a little bit unusual PTH wasn't high. In the small print, if you're magnesium deficient, that can sometimes cause that, and you, you, you might not get a PTH response. Uh, so you want to fix that. But the low phosphate is concerning, and one of the commonest causes for low phosphate is a non-fasting sample. So if you if you have go out for a meal, and then you have the blood test right after, you will drop your phosphate. So retest the phosphate in a fasting sample. But it was suspicious the phosphate was so low. Uh, and, you know, he, he, it had a fracture. Uh, he didn't have much in the way of muscle symptoms. And, and usually a low phosphate does cause proximal muscle weakness, which is a really important sign. If you see low phosphate with proximal muscle weakness, you know there's something serious going on. Um, so uh, the next step is to just do a formal phosphate assessment. Um, so uh, the way I, we do that, Ash, we do a, a fasting serum phosphate, uh, but we do that as part of a very mysterious test called the TMPGFR, which is actually really simple. Uh, it's an overnight fast. Patient passes urine normally, and then two hours after the first urine of the day, they have another urine test while still fasted to measure phosphate and creatinine, and then you measure the phosphate and creatinine in the blood at the same time. And then you go online, put the data in, and if you've got a low phosphate, your TMPGFR reabsorption of renal phosphate should be very high. If it's low, that means it's a renal leak. Uh, and there's only a few things that can cause that. Uh, one is FGF23 driven renal loss, and the other one is Fanconi syndrome. And Fanconi's long list of causes, but just check the urinary amino acids and glucose and check the serum bicarb. Uh, and, and they should be abnormal if you've got Fanconi syndrome. And his 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 normal. That's brilliant. And so with this 32-year-old male, um, his subsequent course from August 2017 was that uh, he was treated, as we said, with alpha-calcidol, 1.25 micrograms once a day, and Sandofost. The Sandofost exacerbated his Crohn's, and he only was able to tolerate uh, one tablet twice a day. And he was switched um, in terms of his iron replacement from Ferinject to Monifer. So in terms of then um, monitoring this gentleman, um, could you talk a little bit about how you would keep a check on things with blood monitoring? Yeah, so in phosphate wasting disorders, the main challenge is replacing the phosphate without causing secondary problems, primarily hyperparathyroidism, which then cause high calcium in the blood and the urine problems. Um, so we don't try and get the phosphate within the reference range, just get it a little bit higher, but we really want to track the outfoss. And we also want to confirm that it is an FGF23 lesion by doing an FGF23 level. It's quite complicated. It has to be done in an EDTA tube and then spun and then sent off. So it's not a, a test you recommend without discussing it with your local biochemistry department so they know the sample's coming and can get ready to send it away. Okay, that's great. And um, can you talk a little bit about, in this case, what kind of happened with this gentleman's levels with the interventions that were carried out? Yeah, so we, we, we switched the iron because there is some evidence that different types of IV iron have a different... Uh, provocation for this FGF23 increased secretion. Um, so the FGF23 level did come down, but his outfoss sort of didn't 
do anything dramatic and is we got his phosphate closer to the reference range. Uh, so we were kind of happy. Uh, but of course, the labs are one thing. It's a clinical picture as well. Uh, and his clinical picture then got worse. Sure. So um, in July 2018, then, um, we saw this gentleman had severe left hip pain and with minimal trauma. And he was diagnosed uh, on imaging with a left femoral pseudofracture. He was referred urgently to the orthopedic team with concerns regarding bone quality. He was partially weight bearing at that point, and he was treated with central intravenous phosphate. This um, was uh, 10 hours, five days a week, 200 hours per month. Uh, so quite a burden treatment. Uh, in November 2018, the patient uh had a complete left femoral fracture and a right femoral pseudofracture and multiple pelvic fractures. This was matched by the worsening symptoms. And the next questions that were being asked was, was this gentleman heading for a bilateral hip arthroplasty? So again, there's a couple of real concerns at this stage, but what what at that point are are you thinking as a metabolic bone specialist? Well, so I've... We work very closely with orthopedic colleagues, and one thing was bone healing and surgical healing. I mean, he's he's cachectic, he's got Crohn's, he doesn't eat very well, his, his tissue healing would be poor, there'd be a high risk of infection and wound problems. Um, it's important to remember that while uh, he presented in adulthood, there are some rare causes of familial hyperphosphatemia that, that can present in adulthood. So it is worthwhile then doing a genetic screen for rarer causes of familial hyperphosphatemia because uh, there are some autosomal dominant forms that do present in adulthood when we've actually got very minimal or no symptoms in childhood. Um, clearly the IV phosphate I didn't think would would work because it, you just put it in the vein and it comes out in the urine and it, was, and it wasn't working and it wasn't sustainable. So we then applied for a compassionate use for uh, for then a new monoclonal antibody that takes out FGF23 called borosumab. And we gave him a relatively small dose because um, uh, the starting dose is usually one milligram per kilogram, but we were advised to start on a much lower dose of 0.3 milligrams per kilogram uh, every, uh, every four weeks uh, to see how it went. Uh, and after a lot of... Uh, form filling in and negotiation with the company we actually started him on brosmap and just to over at that point would there have been any further investigations carried out uh, to our results coming back for causes as to what was going on with this gentleman would there be any other extra tests that you would have sent um, for him the only other test ash would be to test for him for tumoral uh, um, osteomalacia or tumor induced osteomalacia that's where you have an FGF23 secreting tumor. That requires a PET scan, dotatate uh, is the best one at the moment. Uh, uh, however, it was so clearly related to the iron um, that actually we discussed with the radiologists and the radiation dose, and they said, you've got a very clear precipitant tumor-induced osteomalacia in someone who's on iron for Crohn's would be a, a real stretch and suggested, look, the, the, the risk-benefit wasn't there. If you weren't sure if it was the iron, so maybe the timing wasn't right, that would have been the only other test we would have done. And would there be any signals, for instance, that would prompt you to think about familial issues, you know, um, uh, 
genetic causes of the low phosphate? Obviously, his testing was negative, but is there anything that you would say in a history when a patient comes to you that would 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 pique your interest? Yeah, so there are, yeah, very good question. So there are two main forms. Uh, the, the commonest one is an X-linked form, and they have a very predominant dental phenotype. They all get dental abscesses, uh, uh, and they get uh, they're usually short, and they have multiple joint problems. So they get uh, accelerated joint damage. Um, uh, the autosomal dominant form, which I mentioned, is really linked to iron deficiency, and it's commoner in women. Usually, when they when they're a bit older, they have heavier periods, become iron deficient, and then present with uh, the symptoms of hyperphosphatemia. Okay, brilliant. So um, the patient, as you had mentioned, was uh, started on berizumab, and he was continued on his vitamin D and Adcal once a day. So subsequent to that, after four doses, um, we see that on imaging, there had been a dramatic improvement and uh, healing of the bone, improvement in bone quality and healing of the bones uh, around the hip and pelvis. There is also an importantly dramatic improvement in the pain scores and mobility for the patient. Um, and can you just speak to a little bit about berizumab as well, just to give us a little bit of background to that for those that aren't familiar with that kind of treatment? Yeah, it's a, it's a landmark therapy for a, a, a rare cause of familial osteomalacia or rickets called X-linked hyperphosphatemia. I did mention it's very important you stop any phosphate in alpha-calcidol before starting berosumab because berosumab will uh, remove the FGF23 and you don't need any other uh, uh, agents to increase the phosphate. Um, it, it was, it's been approved for uh, children and adults and is used around the world and has really transformed the care of, of people living with uh, this type of familial uh, uh, rickets or osteomalacia. Uh, and now it's almost standard of care in children and is now being used increasingly in adults who, even in older adults who've had decades of, uh, of uh, damage to their musculoskeletal system by the low phosphate and the osteomalacia, still show very impressive improvements in immobility, uh, reductions in stiffness and pain, and an incredible uh, healing of fractures and no instant fractures to my knowledge whilst on the drug. So it really is a game changer for us, much like, you know, TNFs were for inflammatory uh, arthritis. And clearly it was a game changer in this case as well um, with brilliant outcomes. So can I just ask then, for those that aren't um, metabolic bone specialists and general rheumatologists, um, but also from your point as a metabolic bone specialist, what do you feel are the sort of the key learning points um, in this case to take away? Yeah, so the, the key learning is actually increasing your awareness of the importance of a low phosphate. It's often not really looked at and not, maybe not even tested. But if you've got an adult with bone pain, fractures, um, and maybe some muscle weakness, and, you know, the bone pain and muscle weakness can look like fibromyalgia, uh, look at the serum phosphate. If it's low, retest a fasting sample. If that is low, then you've got a then you've got a very strong flag that actually could be a rare one of the rarer causes, such as tumor-induced osteomalacia, uh, or or even a rarer cause such as with iron therapy. Uh, there are now established guidelines. We've got very good imaging um, pathways. We know uh, when to do uh, venous sampling, uh, and the surgeons are getting better and better with either removing the tumour 
or using radiofrequency ablation. And there are now trials of using verosimab to bridge patients on while the hunt for the tumor goes on, because there is a toxicity from uh, alpha-calcidol and phosphate, which is what we used to do to bridge patients. So that would be the commonest presentation to the adult rheumatologist. Someone who's previously fit and well suddenly gets a bit achy, uh, profound tiredness, uh, lots of bone pain, but then starts fracturing. You do the blood test, phosphate's low, and you kick off the pathway. Um, this was really a lesson that not everything that looks like a rare disease is a rare disease, and you need to just be aware that there are other causes. And uh, the way the NHS is restructuring, there will soon be hubs of, uh, you know, rare bone expertise so that if you, if you don't have a bone expert in your hospital there'll be a nearby team you can ask with and discuss in an mdt setting that's brilliant well that has been um uh, a really really fascinating case something that obviously um uh, a lot of us would not have seen much of and that is uh, really interesting lots of key learning points there so thank you so much for your time uh um, all Ash. lovely to speak to you Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Talking Rheumatology Cases, brought to you by BSR. Please do rate, share and subscribe through your favourite podcast app.